You're listening to The 21st Folio, a podcast about modern Shakespeare productions of stage and screen. The podcast is a subsidiary of The Seventh Row, an online publication dedicated to interdisciplinary film and theater criticism. You can find us on Twitter at Seventh Row with the number seven spelled out or online at seventh-row.com. That's S-E-V-E-N-T-H-Row.com. Where would you have put the intermission given that they had to have one? I guess normally when I've seen it done, it's normally either at the end of Act 2 or somewhere in the middle of Act 3. And when I was watching this production, I felt like it came way too late, in part because I was really hoping for a break, and I was like, oh, shoot, they're not going to even have an intermission. Because <laughs> um, was they waited for it so long. And in this production especially, I felt like they built up all this momentum at the end of the third act with all the people running across the stage and the rubble coming in and I I felt like excited like it was moving towards the sort of inevitable end and then they just stopped and we're like see you in half an hour and then when he came back it had lost a lot of its energy what I like in in all theater and in this production as well was the just the mental space to process the first act and try and figure out where they were going what they were thinking about it Yeah, yeah and I think I feel like they didn't think that much about the where to put the intermission in this. Like, it just kind of got slapped in. And I feel like you can actually, because it's a piece of theater and you have to put an intermission in and that it's done purposefully, it's not just slapped in. It doesn't have to be just slapped in. Um, like, where you put it can be really, really important. Um, like, I think, so I've, I recently saw Sam Mendes's cabaret that um, he revived, like, again at the in New York City. And... They put the intermission for that cabaret right after you hear the Nazi hymn for the first time. And it's the creepiest place to put intermission because that's a catchy song. And then you are sitting through intermission, like humming the Nazi anthem in your head. And it's like, you do not want to be sitting there humming the Nazi anthem in your head. And you're like, wow, that's like, that just really made me complicit in this production. That's brilliant. And this is just like, okay, they just had to have an intermission and they waited a really long time. At the moment they chose to stop, um, just that isolated moment was really strong. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Claudius is being really dramatic. You've got ash blowing all over the stage. I want to go away and think about that for a moment. And and you're right, Craig, that's that's a good reason to have an intermission. It's a good way to use an intermission. Give them something, let them think about it. But yeah, it's way, way too far into it. Um, in fact, to be perfectly honest, um, when I first sat down to watch this, by the time we got to the intermission, um, it was quite late at night and I just suddenly found my concentration was gone. So we actually just went to bed um, and right. came back and watched it again another day. So, you know, bad choice of intermission place. You completely lost us. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> I, I think maybe picking up on a theme we seem to be talking about is the choice for where the intermission came. I agree. It was a really powerful moment and scene that they chose, but it was extra textual. It didn't seem to come from a reading of the text. Mm, it was from deciding on a really strong visual moment and, placing it there for that purpose alone. Yeah, nice. Yeah. That's exactly right. So speaking about other visual moments in the play, if we're good on intermission, I'm, I found it really interesting. So about the military themes in the play, and it, it's something that I actually forget pretty much every time I come to see a new production of Hamlet is 
the strength of the the Norway Denmark storyline, the Fortinbras, and uh, and it always sort of surprises me when it comes up, and I think it's all often handled so so poorly. It's often cut. It, you're right. It's it's sometimes it's often cut or, or reduced, but it, I mean it has to exist there to some extent at least for Fortinbras in the end. Um, well, so I understand- cut that. Oh, okay. Oh, I haven't seen a production like that. That's interesting. Um, I've never seen a production where they cut Fortinbras at the end. I'll I've never seen it cut. I've never actually seen Fortinbras entirely cut, but I know that um, it has happened. It, it happens frequently. It's like the first thing that gets cut, which makes sense. But so I think the challenge is this one. I thought was really interesting because for the first. I don't know, 30, 40 minutes, first couple of scenes, they really play up the military aspect um, through the uniforms and through the military map that's present and that sort of all of the transitions seem to be a moment of, you know, military planning for this send-off to war. And uh, all of a sudden it disappears and doesn't get brought back until the toy castle. Did, what, <laughs> like, what, are, what are people's thoughts on, on how they handle the military aspects of, of the play? It seemed like it came back in fits and starts. It seemed like they were very clear that they wanted to play up this angle, but then they had no direction. Um, because, like, you'd see you'd see them trying to emphasize this. I always return to costume design since it's one of the things I noticed first. And you'd see it emphasized perennially in the costume design. And then they didn't really do anything with it beyond simply saying the lines, you know? It was like they wanted to emphasize this military theme, but they didn't actually have a point to make or an interesting take. What would your take be? I've actually never thought about this. What is the force within the rest of the play of that thread? What's it doing? I've never understood it either. I do want to point out just with the costumes that I found kind of problematic is the fact that they put him in scarlet reds. Like, I mean, I know that Hamlet, well, like all Shakespeare, which takes place in not England, it's always about England. But for a play where literally he goes to England, it's kind of weird that he starts off in scarlet, in a scarlet military uniform, and he's supposed to be in Denmark, and then they're like, and like Let's go British to- toy soldier's uniform. It's like yeah. a British children's toy kind of uniform. And then they're like, oh, by the way, but haha, we're actually in Denmark. But like, I mean, the locations in Shakespeare plays are tenuous anyway, but... This really stood out to me as like, we're putting this in England, but then we still have the, you know, we're sending him to England where everybody's mad. Right. I have this vague, I have this vague notion that it actually does matter that this play happens in Denmark. I mean, audiences are not, certainly today, and possibly not then going to be bringing this knowledge into the theatre, but doesn't Denmark have some kind of elected monarchy? Yep. Because otherwise, I've never been able to make sense of the fact that um, Hamlet's not the king. I mean, he's the king's son. Why and Hamlet actually thing? says in this play, and he spoiled my chances at the election. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. yeah. It so yeah, it there, there is a good reason for it to be in Denmark, and also the fact. So like, James Shapiro wrote this book called Fifteen Ninety Nine A Year in the, in the Life of Shakespeare, where he talks about like what was going on in the year when Hamlet was started, and everything that was happening in London, and like what Shakespeare would have read and what was going on. And he basically makes really clear connections about how Hamlet is about England and about how everybody, it's like a surveillance state and there's all these spies and how that comes into play with um, what's getting discussed in Hamlet. And that part of what Shakespeare did is he had to set plays not in England in order to talk about England because, you know, it would be treason to be like, this is England. Mm -hmm. So it's clearly not supposed, I mean, it's clearly England, but it's clearly not England. 
Um, and so to put people in scarlet and actually be like saying that it's England is like contrary to the whole point of setting it in Denmark. Yeah, I agree. That's problematic. I, I experienced it purely as um, visually awkward. <laughs> I mean, it just looks kind of ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. As, as, as an antic disposition, visual signpost goes, I wish they'd found another one. If we're going to go through, like, the four people who show up in military uniforms in this play, arguably Laertes, sort of Laertes, not really. We start with Claudius in his military dress whites, which are spotless and useless. Then we have the ghost in his beat up and bloody and clearly actually seen war military uniform. Mm -hmm. Then we have Hamlet dressed as a literal toy soldier. Like, I really felt that this was a little bit much. (laughs) Um, yeah, I think we all agree with that. And then finally in the last scene, we have Fortinbras, who's marching off to war in a military uniform that actually looks sensible, like something you could fight in. And That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think the Hamlet in the toy soldier uniform is very clearly him poking fun at Claudius in a certain way to say, you know, here you are gearing up for war and, you know, you're about as useful as me and my little fake little castle. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Um, taking fake pot shots at whoever comes through my door. That's very but, good. I like that. Yeah. I, I would agree, but I, I think at that point, maybe I'm misremembering it. I feel like war has disappeared from the Claudius storyline completely. It disappeared for off the face of the play, which is pretty yes. weird, right? Like it, it transitioned from this real gathering for war, you know, like the very serious preparations at the beginning, sending the envoys. Like I thought, oh, okay, it's really going to focus on these themes. And the map's there. And then... The map wheels off and the toy soldier uniform comes out. And then once the toy soldier uniform's off, it's gone until, you know, the second act of the production when you finally encounter Ford and Bra in in an abbreviated scene, I believe. Yes. Right. Okay. The toy soldier scene, that happens after we see the ghost for the first time? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Because Emily doesn't start going fake crazy until after he's seen the ghost. Okay. And that's when we meet Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. It's hard to keep track in this production. <laughs> right? You just like, never know when things happen. happen in the play, but... <laughs> but all of this is linked to the ambassadors that are sent to Norway, right? And they come back just after the to be or not to be speech, don't they? I mean, they, they in wouldn't. Production they, or in production? In production, they do, yeah. Okay. So that's threaded through a little bit more, or am I misremembering the sequence? You're n- I, I can't be clear on the exact sequence. I don't remember, I confess. But, Craig, I think, if I understand you correctly, Craig, your point is that they keep making a big deal out of this, and then it disappears from the production. Yeah, that, that's And it that's suddenly resurfaces, and then it disappears again. And, and I'm curious, what, because in most plays, you know, it, it sort of is this weird, for me often, it's this weird thing that kind of gets brought up, but they never, no one makes a big deal of it. They sort of go through the motions of the military scene and let it fade into the background. Mm-hmm. Whereas here they put so much emphasis on it that I expected them to maybe try and actually draw some sense out of it and connect it. And it still sort of disappeared and made no sense to me. Right. And it would make more sense to let it fade into the background if you had actually put the first scene where the first scene belongs. Because it's like looming over the play, but they're so engrossed in their family drama that they've kind of forgotten that it doesn't matter and that they should get along so that they can fight Fortinbras. Hmm. But they, by putting it like in the middle and then making a big deal of it, it's like, why does it dis- disappear? That's interesting. And, and I, like that, I like that interpretation, Alex, if I'm understanding you correctly, about how, 
how, how really this is the misguided priorities and that the everyone in the Danish castle is so myopic that they can't can't focus on the real looming existential threat before them. I don't think I've ever seen a production that successfully communicates that. Yeah, I'm not sure I've seen that hugely well communicated either. Um, though I, I have heard people talk about this, is that's what Hamlet is about. And maybe it's hard to square that circle with the intense emotional family angle as well. Yeah, I mean, I think I've seen it where the... I mean, I think it's just sort of there when the, the, by the fact that if you, put, if you do the play in order that you know that it's futile because you know that Fortinbras is coming. Mm-hmm. And you know that they're not ready. And then it becomes inevitable that, for, that, that you know, they're going to die and that Fortinbras is going to come and that maybe they shouldn't have killed each other. But you're right that they do make a big deal about some of the military things. So then, and because it's in the middle, like, you can't just let it fade. It just disappears as opposed, it feels haphazard as opposed to, you know, saying yeah. it's coming, mm-hmm. but we're not paying attention and that's our problem. You're and right. Yeah, the first, the first time you hear about it is, in fact, when... Claudius identifies it as a problem and a fear and sends envoys to deal with it. Yeah. And so, it, yeah. And so it seems like he's actually dealing with it as opposed to being like, Fortinbras is coming. Exactly. And then they get very assuaged by the envoys who return and uh, reassure them that it's just safe passage and everyone's holy dory and they can get back to uh, murdering each other. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good thing we're not being invaded so we can kill each other. Exactly. Something else to add to the pile of uh, haphazard uh, fiasco uh, ventures. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay, speak, s- speaking of costumes and Hamlet's jackets, what did you think of his, I guess it's black that he has that says king on the back with a crown? Yes. That he wears forever? Oh, this is one of the more obnoxious choices in a play littered with obnoxious choices. Yeah, <laughs> no, I agree. <laughs> Go on. This is another. So this is another one of those themes that they like, pick up and are sort of like, look at this interesting facet of the play that we will never return to. Um, The line about how Claudius spoils Hamlet's chances with election. I can't recall where that occurs in the play originally, but in this production, they have it in the last act. I don't think that's where it occurs. I think it occurs earlier. And one would make sense. Yes. Because it doesn't make any sense in the last act. Although the last act of Hamlet's kind of messy, right? Um, so God only knows. Vaguely, how does that line go? It is, Hamlet has sort of this litany about, of, of complaints about the evils of Claudius. And one of his things is, he spoiled my chances at election. Meaning, Claudius was elected to be king over me. Claudius holds my rightful place. He says, he hath killed my king and whored my mother, popped in between the election and my hopes. Yeah, there we go. Thrown out his angle for my proper life, and with such cousin, it's not perfect conscience to quit him with this arm, and it's not to be damned to let this canker of our nature come in further evil. Where, is that actually in the last act, or is that earlier? Uh, where is five, that? scene two. Really? Well, it should be earlier. It's to, and it's two, <laughs> it's two <laughs> ratio. Dear William, we have a couple Dear William, of we have some questions. <laughs> We have some notes for you. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, perhaps the king jacket was a an irritating attempt to to raise that theme a little earlier. In which case, it makes a sort of sense. But like one angle you can play up in Hamlet is that Hamlet is envious of Claudius politically, and rightly so. 
you have taken my rightful place. Not only have you murdered my father and whored my mother, you're, you took my job, basically. Right. Yes, yeah. except that in Denmark, it's not your job, is it? The, the whole point of Denmark's constitution is that, the, is that the kingship goes by election. So, in fact, what Hamlet's saying is, oh, poor me, I didn't get what I wanted. I have to work for a living now. <laughs> well, he doesn't have to work for a living, though. He wants to go back to university. <laughs> <laughs> so where's his problem again with not being king? <laughs> it's quite easy for me to find Hamlet very annoying as a character. <laughs> well, it's like in, in the Hamlet book, there's an option at the beginning where he just goes back to school and takes out with Ophelia a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody lives happily ever after. The path not taken. Yeah, yeah I, I, I'm, I'm don't really know what to make of the, the king jacket. I mean, obviously, it sort of made sense in the moment of the the players scene. Uh, and then it almost seems like they just forgot to make another choice after that. I didn't yeah, and then he just keeps wearing it. And it's there being distracted. Well, I think they cut a bunch of his, if I'm remembering correctly, like they cut some of his stuff about like the body politic and about being the head of the state. And so I felt like it, that this production was not particularly preoccupied with the fact that Hamlet is thinking about what it would be, what it would mean to be king. And then he's walking around with a king sign on his back. Okay, spitballing. Shoot me down if this is crazy because I just came up with it. Do we think this production may be more interested in drawing connections between Hamlet and Claudius? Huh. Because Hamlet literally acts out the role that's usually reserved for one of the players by fake pouring the poison into the ear of the actor king. Right. Hamlet walks around with his jacket that says king on the back, basically saying, I want your job. Um, (laughs) Hamlet... If we go back to the uniforms issue, Claudius wears military dress whites, which are useless. Military, but you don't wear them into battle. Hamlet's wearing a toy soldier's uniform. Equally useless, equally false from a a perspective of actually getting anything done. Mm. I think you're getting at a really interesting reading of it. It might, yeah. might be the case. I, I, think it, I think in that case, thinking along these lines, it gives extra motivation for... Claudius's decision to to kill Hamlet and not being able to die, right? It's, it's not just about oh oh sh- oh shit, he's figured me out. I have to knock mm-hmm. him off now. There's this like personal edge to it where he really wants to kill Hamlet, and they're in competition. Well, and it, I think it also yeah. gives, gives motivation for like the the kingdom being rubble for two acts. Mm-hmm. That it's not just like haha. In case you didn't know what the play was about, that it's also like. Well, they're so useless that, like, the kingdom is in rubble because, not just because it's futile, but because they're, like, the two potential leaders are useless. Like, there's no way to go but for them to die because they can't, they can't rule this place. It's a really sharp reading of the production choices and, and the staging, I mean, of, of, of having him, having him act out that role in the, in, in, in the player's play, but I can't really make anything useful of it Mm -hmm. in terms of an approach to either how Cumberbatch plays the role Mm -hmm. or really how the play should hang together. I mean, Claudius doesn't need an extra motivation to kill Hamlet. He's got plenty. Um, This boy has just killed Polonius. He probably thought he was going to kill me. He's been looking daggers at me ever since I started sleeping with his mother. I killed his dad. Um, 
and the common people love him and would rather he were king. Mm-hmm. Well, but I, I, I mean, I agree that he has enough motivations, but I also think one of the things that the first speech that Claudius has establishes is that Claudius is a good politician. That Claudius- a good politician who personally loathes Hamlet. Like the- oh. Yes, but he knows how to hold a crowd. Mm-hmm. And so yep. that he wants to kill Hamlet because he's like, well, Hamlet would be a shit politician. And I'm just doing what's what's what what the kingdom is kingdom needs. And you know, maybe that's a convenient excuse for the fact that he also has personal reasons for doing it. Mm-hmm. Like like all of the things that you just said, David. I, I don't know, maybe that's actually like a reasonable, like an interesting addition or reading to it. And maybe that's why they downplay the relationship between Hamlet and Hamlet Sr. so much. Anyway. Yeah, because I, I don't know if I ever, I get a much less strong sense in, sorry, let me rephrase that. I, I don't get a strong sense from this production that uh, Claudius is incredibly evil compared mm-hmm. to some other productions I've seen. Maybe, maybe I'm being overly generous. but I, No, I think I, you're right. I mean, even like the Nicholas Heitner production was set in some kind of like modern day Eastern Europe dictatorship. And then when when Hamlet asks to leave to go back to Wittenberg, like literally Claudius stamps Laertes' passport and refuses to stamp Hamlet's passport. Like they pretty make, they make him a little, I mean, I think it's a good performance, but it is a little bit mustache twirling. (laughs) Like just because of the the context of it. The the difficulty that I have assessing how much I should dislike this Claudius is that I like Jaron Hines so much. And so much more than anyone else on the stage. And that's even going on when he's being a manipulative bastard, which is a great deal of the time. I mean, in that in that first banquet scene, he's playing everybody to mm-hmm. his own advantage. And he's being reasonably oily about it. I mean, he's he's not someone I can imagine anybody at that table looking at and thinking, gosh, you're great. You want what's best for all of us. Mm-hmm. So much as thinking... You're quite impressive. Um, I I wouldn't want you as an enemy, so I guess I'll keep in line. Um, that's 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 the level of evil that he seems to me. He's a slightly sinister, entirely capable politician um, in terms of the in terms of the public persona he projects. It's it's difficult to run with any line of thinking about Claudius not being particularly evil when we know that he's murdered to get his job. Um, murdered his brother to get mm. his job. I really found the I cannot repent speech affecting. Yes. Um, it's, it's probably my favorite moment in this production. He just, he, he does it so effectively. Um, simultaneously, I feel for him. And I feel that, yeah, you're, you're, you're a man who did a very bad thing and cannot repent for it because you still want the things you did it for. Your self-diagnosis is precisely correct, sir. You are an evil bastard, and you deserve to burn. Um, so it's 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 quite a complex moment, um, but it's complex the way that Shakespeare wrote it to be, which is um, <laughs> as, as agree, it's, that's that's almost unique in this production. <laughs> did anyone find the relationship between Gertrude and Claudius peculiar? I did not understand it honestly. They seem rather icy toward one another. Yeah, they did. Um, there's, that, there's that one entry of his he has where he walks in on the line, where is your son? And he really sounds like, I mean, it's not a happy marriage, and they've only been together, what, 
Um, how long have they been married? Two Not or three long. months. Um, well, we just saw their wedding table. Two or, it's two or three months. It's less than two oh, months. Yeah, two or three months since, since Hamlet Sr.'s uh, funeral. You're right. Didn't they the, just get married in this production? Like, like we literally yeah. saw the banquet? You're right. Gosh. <laughs> yeah, so, so <laughs> something is rotten in the state of Denmark, um, <laughs> actually speaking. Uh, the moment that springs to mind when I think of their relationship is up on the balcony when Rosencrantz and Guildenstern arrive. And you see, the, again, there doesn't seem to be any real connection between Claudius and Gertrude. Gertrude is very much focused on, it seems, Hamlet's well-being. And Claudius is much more you know, business-like and trying to just sort out the, uh, the surveillance and get, get the information back for perhaps more nefarious reasons. Uh, but there's no real partnership between them and which i mean i just want to bring up the production that emma and i saw this summer at stratford um because i think part of the problem is if you don't have a good relationship but that's clear between um claudius and gertrude that it makes it more difficult to understand their relationship to hamlet mm-hmm. and that in that production we saw it was like the reason they wouldn't le- let him leave denmark is because they wanted him to witness and approve of their marriage they were like we know you don't like us but we need your approval and we won't let you leave because we need you to sit around and say that it's okay that we remarried. And I don't understand to the same degree. Like, even if, if they wanted him to, like, be a buffer, that would be one an interesting take. But I don't understand, like, why they need him there because I don't fully understand their relationship I and, like, why they want to be married. I understand why independently they want Hamlet there. Claudius right. wants to keep an eye on him. Yeah. And generally genuinely wants her son around. But I don't understand why they got married and all of that business about um, all that stuff about the sexual relationship between Gertrude and Claudius makes no sense whatsoever. They display yeah. no physical heat toward one another. In fact, they seem in some scenes like they can barely tolerate one another. Right. And they like justify Hamlet's silly thing about how she's too old to have sexual. Feelings. Yeah. Like, well, she's really not into this guy. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, you're too old to be hot blooded or whatever it is. Um, it is such a great speech. <laughs> yes. Oh, the misogyny rolls off him in waves. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh. Don't read that particular line as misogyny. I read that line as, as something quite desperate and eatable. But mm. <laughs> it's, it's or just like really of... silly children. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're yeah. so old. How can you still have sexual feelings? <laughs> I think the first, the first Hamlet I ever saw. This is slightly embarrassing. Is the Mel Gibson one. Um, mm-hmm. where his mother is played by Glenn Close, and they're like, there's maybe six years age difference between them. So it, <laughs> in, most, in most respects, it really doesn't work, and it speaks terribly of Hollywood's casting practices. But in that one scene, um, it gives a real tension to the don't sleep with your husband mm-hmm. line. Um, and it's possibly coloured how I've approached that scene ever since. Um, you see, I would, I would, I would say I have the same uh, benchmark uh, from that scene that comes to mind when I think of eatable feelings in Hamlet. But it it colours me the other way in that since nothing else even comes close to the level of creepiness of that scene, <laughs> that uh, that I, I really don't get a lot of those undertones from other productions I've seen. Huh. Although you know they do, they don't and they don't put a bed on stage and people love doing that scene which with them rolling around on the bed yeah which I think 
it was Nicholas Heitner or maybe Richard Eyre who pointed out that it's not it doesn't actually take place in the bedroom. It takes place in the closet, but people love to put it in the bedroom. Huh. Yeah, I always picture it in the bedroom mentally, so that's interesting. Yeah, it's yeah. technically in the closet, but that's not where a lot of productions put it. Emma's point about the excision of the sexual aspects of the Hamlet Ophelia relationship kind of affects my reading of the scene as well because you just you can't take the gross physicality out of Hamlet's language there when he talks about do not let him puddle his fingers in your neck is it there's there's two or three lines in quick succession which are just very very specifically physical it's, it's yeah uh, written and there's, there's there's so much awkwardness and discomfort and disgust in the way he speaks about his mother to his mother he says uh, let the bloat king tempt you again to bed pinch wanton on your cheek call you his mouse and let him for a pair of reachy kisses or paddling in your neck with his damned fingers make you to ravel all this matter out that i essentially am not in madness but mad in craft so if that is the only sexual contact contact content david's concentration is going people <laughs> if, that's the, if that's the only sexual content of the entire production it comes out even more and has recently broken her heart by ceasing to do so. So I was not troubled, as I think at least a couple of you were, by the edit much. I think I said this right at the beginning, actually. There were, there were just a few moments where I was aware that things were happening on the stage that I couldn't see, and that bugged me. But mostly, I quite enjoy having... I quite enjoy the density of close-ups, I guess, um, I, I, I like being close up with actors while they're talking to me. It's something I don't get from the theatre. And I, in general, enjoy the sense that I'm seeing something which is quite unique and not like the theatrical experience. Um, and specifically in this production, I wasn't troubled by the particular way they shot it. Um, I think that you guys were, maybe? I was. I feel like I lost things from the theatrical experience and I sort of, kept noticing things I, I I wanted to see more of or that I thought might be different in person. And I didn't necessarily feel like I gained a lot from the, the film version that they did. Uh, I agree. It was a lot of, I saw a lot of close-ups, but it, especially in scenes where it was dialogue, I was wishing for at least, you know, the two shot to see the reaction. And instead it was a lot of close-up one shots of uh, whoever was speaking. Mm. That makes sense. For me, the biggest issue is that I couldn't see the blocking. Um, there were large parts of the play where I had no idea where characters were in relation to one another on stage physically. Mm-hmm. And especially in a play like Hamlet, which is all about how characters relate to one another and each production, the difference between each production is very fine gradations in how those characters relate to one another. If you're missing out on the blocking, you're missing out on a huge chunk of that. There's just a lot of information that you don't get. I'm going to jump in and disagree with you that it's all about the relationships. It's also all about the complex subjectivity, right? So to that extent, getting a close-up on, for example, Hamlet um, mm-hmm. is quite useful when a large part of what you're doing in this play is trying to fathom what's going on inside his head. Literally this... being able to see his head up close, um, certainly the way Cumberbatch played it, lots of... Um, Lots of distress flickering across his features. I liked how well I was able to see his features. Do you, do you think that doesn't add anything useful? Or do you, do you think it's not worth what you lose in exchange? I think that it depends if you're making a movie of Hamlet or if you're filming a stage production of Hamlet. Because this is a stage production first. That's what it is. And the play 
the play is designed to be a play and it's designed to convey information through things that a theater audience can see. Um, when you do close-ups, like certainly that's one of the virtues of being able to see a film. You can see stuff that the audience doesn't see, but you have to be very careful to balance that with what information the production itself is trying to convey. And if you spend too much time on, on things that are specifically designed for film, you miss out on what the production is trying to convey to the theatrical audience, which is information we need to understand what the production is doing. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't, I don't dispute that. I do though slightly dispute the extent to which that information can be conveyed cinematically. Mm -hmm. When, When you hang back far enough to give me that blocking, you're in a sense putting me in one of the audience seats and yet I cannot have the experience of being surrounded by the audience and I don't gain the full immersion sense of being in the theatre. What I gain is a sense of increased distance, um, which I tend to find quite cold. Mm -hmm. I think that's why when I see these filmed productions of stagings, I I want to be closer more. Does that make sense? Uh, okay, you go. You go, May. No, go ahead. I've talked. Good. <laughs> okay, I'll just I'll just talk and then I'll throw it over to Alex. I <laughs> I agree with you, David. That I I think that that's a big challenge in these productions, particularly on a large set. So like I would contrast it with the NT Live production of Coriolanus, uh, mm-hmm. which had the benefit of a much smaller theater to be working in. Um, absolutely, but I think that well, and there are no bad seats in the Donmar. You can see people's faces no matter where you are. God bless right. Yeah. So, so it's probably not a fair comparison to make, but there you get the chance of, you know, if, even if they go in for a short close up, you can pull back to the set and still make out the details in everyone's face, especially in a cinema. Yeah. I think, I mean, one of the things that's sort of difficult to judge too, if, if, if you're watching this and you want to say, is Benedict Cumberbatch a good Hamlet? I think one of the things that's difficult is because we spend a lot of time on his face and like, we know he can do state, we know he can, act on film is I'm not sure that we get a sense of how does he play to the balcony? Is Mm -hmm. he physical enough that we feel how he feels without seeing his face? I mean, when I saw Ken, Kevin Spacey do Richard the third, I was sitting in the shittiest seat. I was in the literal back row of the balcony and I could not see his face. I couldn't even hear like every third word. And I, I was so impressed because I could feel everything that we, that he was that was going on. He was it was such a physical performance. I could understand where he was going and where what his emotional journey was and how he was feeling because of how he physical physically played that out. And I think because we go in so close on Benedict Cumberbatch, I have no idea if that if he's doing that really and if that's playing to the to the back or if it's just on his face. Because if it's just on his face, that's not a good stage performance, especially in a giant theater like the Barbican. It maybe could work in the Donmar. And even some of the things that we were talking about before, like the banquet scene at the beginning where we cut to close-ups of him, if you're in the audience, I don't know if it works as well as it does on the film because we cut to him. And so it's sort of hard to judge, like, in a way that I, I haven't felt it was so hard to judge with most of NT Live's productions. Um, like, it's hard. It's sort of hard to judge how well it works as a on stage, like even when Ophelia does her has her breakdown, near the end we we hang on close up of her on her. And if one of the things the production has done well, which we talked about, was that you get the feeling of her isolation, it must be a very different experience for the audience to see her alone on this vast stage breaking mm-hmm. down. 
than to see her up close breaking down. Like it's, we're in her head. We, I mean, it's a different way of getting in her head, I guess. One is you feel her loneliness and the other is you like see her face. And I'm just not sure we're seeing in a way that I don't normally feel with most of NT Live's productions. I don't know that I really feel like we're seeing the stage production. Whereas like if you look at say the NT Live King Lear with Simon Russell Beale, they hang on him when he when he says never 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 it's a close up and i felt that was really affecting but i also felt like i had a sense of what it would have felt like in the audience even though it was like a close up like i still kind of i didn't feel like we lost something i felt like we gained something but not at the expense of wondering whether he was any good see i i think we never get the stage experience i think it's always a different beast but Having said that, um, I think I would like to formally concede MA's point. I think, yeah, you you argue it well, the three of you, and um, you have trampled me into the dirt. I... <laughs> oh, dear. Very violent. <laughs> uh, symbolically, not emotionally. Sorry, that sounded completely... <laughs> but to pull out one moment that I think worked, because there were some moments I think that worked really well on film that just reemphasized to me how poorly most of it translated. And that was the fall of a sparrow speech at the end where it was, it started with a shot of Horatio and Hamlet and went into a slow zoom towards Hamlet, which is taking a like, you know, more classic cinematic trope. But I think in that yeah. moment with that speech, it actually added a lot of emotional heft. Hey. Just to talk about process a little, um, because my understanding is that when they put this together, they actually did a lot of rehearsals in order to, um, like, they, they had several days of rehearsals, with the ca- of camera rehearsals, to figure out how they wanted to shoot it. Huh. Um, I wonder if it would have been better if they, if they hadn't done that, because they wouldn't have had time to think about what moment they want to capture, and they would have had to shoot it more like a documentary in the way that, like, say, Frederick Wiseman shoots, where he goes for wide angles because he doesn't want to miss anything. Um, and he wants to capture everything because you're not going to be able to match, you know, later on to close-ups or you put close-ups where you know that what's, when you're, you're there and you're like, I don't understand what the guy's saying anyway, so I might as well cut to close-ups. And I wonder if that would have given us a more authentic experience of the stage, especially because it's not like, say, Julie Taymor's Midsummer Night's Dream where she's deliberately making a film of the play. It's like, we're broadcasting the play. Um, maybe they should have done it more like as though they didn't know what was going to happen. I don't know. Hmm. In- interesting thought. I think, yeah, I think it would be a very different film if they didn't have that opportunity. The other thing I wanted to ask is about, because what NT Live does, which, or doesn't do, I guess I should say, compared to what the Globe and the Royal Shakespeare Company do, is that you can only see this production, well, except for David, um, you can only see this production in theaters with an audience and for a limited amount of time. Like, it will not come out on DVD later for you to watch over and over again on the small screen at home. And I wonder whether you think that um, the big screen is important as part of, like, how you see it because, like, the characters are, like, the same or, like, the size of people or if it takes away from it because then you have a close-up that's, like, the size of a cinema screen um, so it's not just that it's closer, but it's like way bigger than you would have been able to see it on stage. And like how you, what you think about this as being like a transient experience, I guess. I would argue maybe that I think it's less about the scale of the screen than the communal experience of watching it together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, you know, David, you made that point about 
uh, the challenge of when you're sitting, you know, even if it's a wide shot, you don't get that same audience experience. And I think it's, it's not the same in a cinema, but there is to some, some sort of level of that, that energy in the room. So do you think that that's like a, I mean, I, I wonder a bit about the trade-off. Like, do you think that that's a good policy? Because that policy also means that like you guys haven't seen Nicholas Heitner's Hamlet. Right. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I want everything to come out on DVD because I want to see everything. Um, yeah. I mean, that's kind of how I feel. I would, and I would love to see it like over and over and over again. Yes. Maybe not this production, but like. <laughs> <laughs> the Nicholas Heitner, we get it. <laughs> <laughs> and so King Lear is up and down. This morning. I spent about three hours this morning with this production and Branner's production, which I have on DVD and various other productions that I found on YouTube. And my son and I sat here and we just did scene comparisons. Mm. So we did lots of, lots of to be or not to be's. And I, I was only planning to spend 20 minutes doing it, but we just found we couldn't stop. It was completely fascinating. It's a very um, <laughs> deconstructed way of experiencing Shakespeare, but it's just so much fun. And you, you start hearing such different things when you compare Brenner's to be or not to be with Cumberbatch's. It's just amazing the amount of nuance there is just breath for breath and syllable for syllable, how they weight things differently in the slightest ways and in the largest ways. And it's, it's really fun. I want to be able to do that. I want that option. Mm. So I, I think NT live productions should absolutely be made available on DVD. And I'm slightly startled that they're not. Do you know what the logic of that is? It's, it's preserving the uniqueness well, this is an interesting question. <laughs> I, uh, what they say is that one is preserving the uniqueness and, the, and two is that they don't have the copyright. They don't have Just the intellectual property. Well, uh, it's not about the Shakespeare. It's about like the, I think it has to do with like actors contracts. Hmm. Um, but, you know, if they know they're going to broadcast things in future, get the rights. Dear and T-Live. And then they're doing weird things like in, in England, they have now made available to schools. You can actually stream, you can stream Sam Mendes's King Lear. You can stream Nicholas Heitner's um, Hamlet and can stream the Coriolanus with um, Tom Hiddleston to classrooms. Like you can sign up if you are teaching a school in England to stream that to classrooms and use it as teaching material. But like, why not make that available to the world? Like it really drives me crazy that people can't see I mean, all of those are terrific productions. There are pro- more problems with the Coriolanus than with the other two. The other two are, like, amazing. But it, I feel like you've recorded it. It's great. Why not make it available? Yeah. And presumably, I mean, I, I don't specifically know, but presumably they'd start to be available in pirated versions sooner or later if the streams are out there. Some bright person would quietly... Go off with one. Um, I think they're already available. I think that that was true like a long time ago. I know a lot of people who watched the Frankenstein pirated somehow. Yeah. So, I mean, my response to this, my response to piracy generally is always get on top of it by finding a legal way for people to watch these things, damn it. Or yeah. Please take my money. I yes, would love to give you my money. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Please take my money. Mm. So that is our plea to NT Life. And also to the um, BFI, who has, like, productions of old things like Trevor Nunn's Hamlet with a 23-year-old Ben Wishaw. <laughs> or see Richard II with Mark Rylance. Right. 
which right now, if you want to see, you have to be an academic, go to the VNA and pay 10, 10 pounds an hour to watch it on a screening thing after like applying for permission to do so. Why can't we have everything we want right now? That is the question. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> not to be or not to be. Give me everything. When it comes to should National Theatre Live productions be available to the public or not be available? <laughs> I see what you did there. Do we need it? Did they boink? They didn't well, boink. The play was conclusive about that. Yeah, I was going to say, like, we could have, we, we didn't have our did they boink section, but I thought the fact that they removed every sexual reference meant that yeah. Hamlet Ophelia did not boink, no matter how much he likes to say country matters. Hamlet and Ophelia did not boink. Claudius and Gertrude might as well have not boinked for all we could tell. <laughs> yes. Had a really terrible boink. And regardless, I'll never know. <laughs> and, and on that note, everyone. No one, because he's a hobo. <laughs> he's not a hobo. He's a university kid. <laughs> That's like... <sighs> I think at U of T or maybe at Stanford, there was like a prof or hobo thing where they had photos of prof. <laughs> figure out who was which and it was actually really hard i thought a lot of profs were hobos and i thought a lot of <laughs> well it was it was homeless but they all had like really long hair and giant beards and like they hadn't had personal hygiene in a year and it was like oh no prof <laughs> oh dear that is a large part of the point of the academic lifestyle <laughs> okay. it's the personal freedom so with that, I guess we'll end. Not with a bang, but a whimper. So uh, let's wrap up the podcast then. So I guess that concludes our podcast, the Cumbercast on the uh, Benedict Cumberbatch Hamlet at the Barbican Theatre, directed by Lindsay Turner. I'm Alex Heaney, the editor-in-chief of The Seventh Row, a film and theatre critic. You can find me on Twitter at BeWestCineAst. And my guests today are uh mary angela Rowe, contributing editor to editor to the seventh row you can find me on twitter at at lapsed victorian and craig rattan amateur theater enthusiast i'm on twitter at crut and finally from new zealand david larson film reviewer for metro magazine you can find me on twitter at leaf lemming that's l-e-a-f-l-e-m-m-i-n-g a word which makes no sense to any sentient human being which is why i chose it uh, and that's it. We'll be back soon with more Shakespeare performance podcasting. And that's the end of this episode of the 21st Folio. Check back next week for a new episode discussing new Shakespeare productions. To keep up with the latest episodes, don't forget to subscribe to the 21st Folio podcast on iTunes. For show notes and more information about the podcast, please visit 7th-row.com. That's S-E-V-E-N-T-H-row.com. 